If I haven't met you before, my name is Matt. I am one of the leaders here. It's great to be with you this morning, and happy Thanksgiving weekend uh, to all of you. Hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, we are getting back into the book of Matthew today, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 8, verse 1, and we will go ahead and get started. We have a ton of ground to cover this morning uh, in a short amount of time, so we are going to get right to it. If you were with us last week, you know that we finished up a series called Prayer and Prophecy uh, with a teaching on healing. And and this week, we are getting back into our series on the book of Matthew, uh, picking up where we left off right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount back in May. So we're kind of going back to pick up again, and it just happens to be a passage on healing. Um, As Jesus concludes, what is uh, most likely uh, the the most famous or well-known teaching in world history, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he immediately begins demonstrating the power of God that is at work within him. So we pick up in uh, Matthew chapter 8, Verse 1, this is what it says. It says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus told him, see to it that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Then when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, I, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that... um, has accurately revealed the life and identity of Jesus to us. And as we um, gather together in your name, under the authority of Scripture, I pray that um, we would allow this passage to actually um, speak a word to us, maybe challenge us in our Western culture. 
And by the power of the Spirit, um, God, would you open our eyes increasingly to who you are and, and what you're up to in the world. We want what you want, Jesus. So would your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. The mission of Jesus on earth can be summarized in one short phrase. Repent, Jesus says, or return to God because the kingdom of heaven is near. Or some of your translations say, is at hand or, or at your fingertips. It is now becoming available to you. This is the phrase with which he launches his ministry. And if we look at the entirety of his life, from birth to death to burial to resurrection and ascension, his teachings, his miracles, his healings, casting out the demonic, all of it, this seems to be the only phrase that can sum it all up. But that begs the question, just what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? And what develops as the story unfolds is that the kingdom of God refers to the rule of God. It's the place where God actively reigns as king and his will is done. So in the heavenly place in which God most clearly dwells, we can imagine that his will is always done. And, and that's actually what makes it the place that we so desire to be. And then you have the earthly realm, which historically, uh, as an ancient Israelite or whatever, you would look out into the world and conclude that very little of God's will was being done on earth. Think of the Tower of uh, Babel uh, or the necessity of the flood due to human evil or really the entire Old Testament in which God is frustrated with human beings and, and many angelic beings as well for not doing his will. And so for the sake of simplicity, you have the heavenly place in which God's will is done, and you have earth in which not nearly enough of God's will is being done. And then you have this future place, which we call the kingdom of heaven, in which those two realms will be joined together in a radical act of recreation. All of the cosmos will be brought under the active rule and reign of God. There will be no more death, no more disease, no more dark powers at work in the world. The very sources of evil will be done away with. People are restored in every aspect of their being filled with the life-giving grace and power of God for all eternity. So, God rules and reigns in the heavenly place. It's a mixed bag on earth, but one day in the future, the two will be joined together. Now, the radical importance of Jesus is that he showed up and he inaugurated or he began the kingdom of heaven right here and now. He began to mix the two, so to speak, 
in advance of the end of the age. He began to mix them together sooner than we expected. He began to blur the lines, so to speak, between heaven and earth. And so we get bits and pieces of the kingdom of heaven here and now. We are now called, as the people of God, to join with him in establishing God's kingdom right in the middle of a dying world. We are taking ground from the enemy in advance of and as a precursor to his final defeat. And so Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven and how to live in God's inbreaking kingdom. But he's not just talking about it. He's also demonstrating what it looks like for God to rule and reign. He's demonstrating what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Demons flee, the sick get well, and the dead are raised. Not because Jesus is a magician or a really nice guy, but because this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks in. We are experiencing through Jesus in bits and pieces what all of creation will one day have in full. And this is the context for us understanding what healing is and what it's all about. The reality of healing cannot be ignored in the gospel accounts. In fact, if you take the narrative portions of the gospel a shocking 40% of it is devoted to stories of Jesus healing. 40%. Apparently, this is part of what it means for God to rule and reign. There will be a future day when there is no more disease, no more death, no more deformity, no more sickness, no more sin, but that future kingdom has already begun pushing up through the concrete, so to speak. Rays of thick, rich sunlight are slowly piercing the dark clouds of the reality that we live in. And as a result, people are healed along the way. Not everybody, not every time, but some people, some of the time. And I want to use the passage that we just read today to answer a a few questions. Uh, Primarily, uh, who does God heal and how does God heal? First, if you're taking notes, uh, I want us to notice in this passage who God heals. As Jesus comes down from delivering the Sermon on the Mount, he's immediately met in verse 2 by a leper who was among the most ostracized and marginalized in their society. A total outcast, worthless. In fact, perhaps worse than worthless. They were an annoyance and a threat. They were better unseen and never to be touched. And he comes to Jesus for healing 
And what does it say? Verse 3. Jesus reached out his hands and touched him. Did he need to? No. But he did. He wanted to. As if to say, you have value. You have worth. You have dignity. And the kingdom of God has now come upon you. And God healed him. Next, verse 5. We're told that a centurion came to him. And to be clear, that was a military officer of the occupying army. Israel had one giant problem in Jesus' day. And that was Rome. This man represented the the oppressor, the enemy, the the slave master. He he was a a Nazi military officer in occupied Poland. He is despised by the people of Israel. They wish he were dead. And he comes to Jesus in humility, essentially recognizing Jesus as king. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. And and we read that and we think, oh, that sounds really nice. But guys, this was grounds for a riot. I mean, that guy? Jesus, you're not talking about that guy. Because when the Messiah comes, that guy dies. And then Jesus continues. He says, oh yeah, And while we're on the subject, there's going to be a whole bunch of guys like this who come into my eternal kingdom. And there's going to be a whole bunch of people walking around thinking that they're the people of God and they're going to be shut out in the cold. And at that point, if you're a first century Jew, you call off the riot because it's time to crucify him. You you could not say these things about a Roman centurion. And and he comes to him and recognizes his authority in faith. And Jesus says, okay, by your faith, it, it will be done. But inside, the people listening would have been torn up as they watched this happen. It, they, they would have struggled. I mean, cast out the leper. Death to the Romans. Is there anyone else in first century Israel that is disadvantaged in society. Oh, right, women. What do you think the next story is going to be on? Verse 14. Jesus came into Peter's house and saw Peter's mother-in-law laying in bed sick, and he healed her. For a 20th century American, these stories shock us because Jesus healed real stuff that we assume only the trained medical community has the ability to address. That's what shocks us. For a first century Jewish man, these stories would have been shocking for a totally different reason. It wasn't that Jesus was healing, as beautiful as that is, but it was who Jesus was healing that would have shocked them. And I think this speaks a word to us about Jesus' mercy 
and, and His compassion and His radical inclusivity that I don't want us to miss. God's grace is radical and unrestrained and He desires to meet and save and heal the very people that we are tempted to marginalize and ignore and oppress. And Jesus says, I want those people. And usually our gut reaction is, really Jesus? Those? Those people? Yeah. That, that's who I want. God's love is not restrained to the people that we deem worthy of it. And neither is His healing. He didn't come for the healthy, Jesus says. He came for the sick. And their merit had nothing to do with God healing them. And that was radical. And that was offensive. And if we aren't careful, then we will actually take offense at who gets healed and who doesn't. God's love and mercy can actually be a stumbling block for us if we're not on board with what God's up to in the world. And I think that plays a role in this conversation. God loves the people that you don't love. And, and His mercy is so abundantly available that it will fall on people that you don't think are worthy of it. And we need to be okay. No, no, no. We need to rejoice in that. But there's another factor here. Uh, in addition to God's radical love and mercy that I don't want us to miss, and that's faith. One of the uniting factors in all of these stories is faith. The leper comes to Jesus and says, if you are willing you can make me clean. You can make me clean. In other words, Jesus, I have complete and utter faith in your ability to do this. It's just up to you. And then the centurion comes to him and says, just say the word. You don't even have to come to my house. You just say the word right now and 50 miles, 100 miles, 200 miles away, my servant will be healed. He has that sort of faith and confidence says Jesus was amazed and told his followers he had never seen anyone in Israel with such great what faith. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, one page over to Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. As Jesus continues to heal people, we gain some additional insight into the relationship between faith and healing. Clearly, it is the power of God which carries out the healing, but faith seems to be a channel through which the Spirit works. We'll pick up in verse 18. While he was saying this, Jesus is in the middle of a teaching, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come and put your hand on her, and she will live. That's confident faith. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then a, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. That's faith. And Jesus tur turned and saw her and said, daughter, take heart. 
your what? Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes and mourning, he said, go away or stop mourning. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Okay, out you go. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? In other words, do you have faith in me? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your what? Faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. Do you see the connection here between the two? A woman comes forward in confidence and just touches him. And Jesus says, take heart, your faith has healed you. And then he gets to the house and tells everyone to stop mourning because the girl is just sleeping which clearly isn't true, but maybe in like a metaphorical sense. They kind of scoff at him. And so what does he do? He says, all right, everybody out. Why, why does Jesus do that? It, because he wants a faith-filled environment. So he says, all right, scoffers, cynics, we love you. Why don't you go ahead and wait outside? The Holy Spirit has some work to do here. Then the blind men come and ask for healing. And he says, do you believe that I can do this? Well, yeah, Jesus, like that's, that's why, we, why we came. Awesome. According to your faith, let it be done to you. And they were healed. Time and time again, Jesus points out that faith plays a role in opening up avenues for God to work and creating an environment for the Spirit of God to move in power. In fact, uh, this is the account we read of Jesus' return to Nazareth, where he grew up. It says, coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and, and these miraculous powers? They asked him, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, uh, mo isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And... He did not do many miracles there because of their lack of what? Of faith. In fact, in Mark's version of this exact same account, it says he couldn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Which begs all sorts of questions in my mind. It, he, he couldn't? Because there was no faith. 
that's my son. Okay, so that's, wow. What, what, what do you do with that? And, and don't think for a second that this doesn't happen today. I, I think there are way too many American churches that, that fall into this mold. Why? Because cessationism it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you walk around telling yourself and, and others that God doesn't heal anymore, you slowly begin to shape yourself into the very scoffers that Jesus asked to step outside. Hey, we love you. I really do. But, but I, I need you to step out there. God wants to do something here. And your faith actually has something to say about it. There are entire communities who actively hold this attitude and believe that God won't do these things and sure enough, their experience reflects their attitude. They've created their own little Nazareth in, in which God doesn't heal in accordance with their firmly held belief that he won't. Do you see the relationship between the two? Jesus either chooses or somehow isn't able to move in faithless environments. Our faith becomes a channel through which God's healing power can flow. Generally speaking, the more faith, the more healing. And the less faith, the less healing. But we have to be careful about the conclusions that we draw from that correlation. Because some groups have taken it so far as to say that faith is the only factor in healing. And so you have entire groups of people who have forsaken modern medicine and, and chosen to go with faith instead. And there are other groups of people who say, well, if God doesn't heal you, then it's because you lack faith for it. There have been pastors whose wives have been diagnosed with cancer and they have publicly said that their wives are dying because of their lack of faith. Really? I was talking with a Whitworth student uh, recently who attended church for the first time in years. They kind of went off to college and and the opposite response that most college students have, they said, actually, I want to I you know, claim that. I want to get into church and, and be involved. And their first time to church in years, the pastor uh, taught on healing. And then at the end of the gathering said, okay, everybody break up into groups of five or six and you know, pray over the, the sick and disabled people in your group. So they prayed over a girl in a wheelchair and she didn't get up. Which was fine, but then the pastor came around and chastised them because their prayer subject wasn't healed and, and basically said, hey, you guys aren't very good Christians and, and you don't have enough faith. And she has no desire to attend church again, anywhere, 
ever. That was it for her. And, and so you have cases of children dying because their parents refused modern medicine. And, and you have family members dying of cancer only to be told by the people they love that they don't have enough faith. And, and then you have college students who never want to attend church again. And all of it is based on assumptions about the relationship between faith and healing. Do, do you see how much damage has been done in, in that? Absolutely. But when you read through the gospel accounts, what we see is that faith is a factor in healing, but it's not the only factor. For example, in the accounts we just read from Matthew 9, on two occasions, Jesus told someone that their faith had healed them. And on the third occasion, Jesus brought someone back from the dead. Who had faith in that scenario? wasn't the dead girl. It had to have been someone else. In Mark 2, verse 5, a paralyzed man is lowered through the roof by his friends. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith was that? When he saw their faith of the friends, then he turned to the paralyzed man and told him to pick up his mat and, and walk. And, and, and we're not even told in this story what the heart posture of the paralyzed man was. He might have been dragged there in bitter skepticism for all we know. No, I don't want to go see Jesus. Whatever. Hey, man, you're paralyzed. <laughs> like, all right, guys, let's grab this guy. Let's go. Let's pick him up. And they bring him to Jesus, and, and he's healed. And, and so what we see is that sometimes people are, are healed through their faith that opens up this avenue for God to work. But other times the people that are healed are dead or just dead in their faith. And sometimes the reverse is true. I, I, I've seen people healed when the person praying for them didn't have any faith. In fact, I taught on healing one time uh, at my, the, the former church that I was at in, in Portland, Oregon. And at the end of uh, the gathering, we had this little prayer room, and a guy with a broken leg got up on crutches and kind of hobbled his way in, into the prayer room and went up to our friends, uh, we'll call him Bruce, and went up to our friends, uh, Bruce, for, and, and asked for healing. And uh, Bruce is an amazing guy, always in the prayer room, huge heart for Jesus, huge heart for people, had been following Jesus for decades, passionately praying for people for decades. He was like the guy in the prayer room. But um, Bruce, mid-50s or something, tons of experience, but Bruce was not accustomed to praying for physical healing. That just wasn't something he, he'd done. It wasn't something that he'd been comfortable with. just wasn't on the map. And this wasn't common at our church for like physically sick people to pray for healing. But he came in and told Bruce, hey, I want pray, prayer for my leg or whatever. And so Bruce, um, more out of kindness than anything, says like, okay, I guess we can like pray for your leg. Um, not believing that God does that type of stuff. But he's out of kindness. I guess we can do that. And so he's, you know, praying for Chris and, God, would you just be with Chris in his pain and comfort him? And I guess if it might be your will, 
heal his leg or something, but just be with Chris, really, and um, just, you know, comfort him through his affliction. And they, they pray for a couple minutes, and at the end of the prayer, um, Chris gets up on his crutches, and he says, oh, oh my gosh, like, I think, I, I think my leg feels better. Like, I, it's, and he, he kind of stands on it and starts rocking on it, and, and Bruce is just staring at him, and then he, like, sets his crutches down, and he's like, oh, oh my gosh, my leg. Like, I, I, think, I think God just healed my leg. And Bruce is thinking, right, yeah, right. Like, he just did that, sure. And, and sure enough, he starts jumping up and down. Guys, his leg is completely healed. A clean fracture through his leg, completely healed. And, and so, and he takes off his brace that his leg was in, and he walks out of the prayer room holding the brace and the crutches over his head. Like, hallelujah, praise God. You have no idea what just happened to me. Celebrating, like going out in joy. And then there's Bruce. <laughs> like, like, just staring, like mouth open. Like, no. No. Like, that, that's not possible. That's not, I just, that can't, God can't, how did he, I didn't know that God do, does that stuff. He was just flabbergasted. He had zero, it was not the faith of Bruce that healed that guy. I'm guessing the guy who came in had some level of faith or else he wouldn't have gotten out of his chair. But Bruce didn't and God just chose to heal him. And, and then we have to face the reality on the other end of the spectrum in which people uh, who have been used by God to heal dozens and even hundreds of other people have themselves not received healing. If anyone in the world has had faith for healing, it was these men and women, and yet a surprising number of them struggled, had lifelong struggles with things they were absolutely certain, God, I'm absolutely certain God has the ability to heal this. I believe he wants to, and, and they weren't. And so they're praying and praying over the years, seeing dozens of people healed. And yet at the end of it, they're still left asking, God, why not me? In fact, when we start talking about healing, I think it raises all sorts of difficult questions inside and outside of the church. Here are just some of the questions we're asking, starting with the big one. Does God exist? Second, did God heal? Was that something he did back then with those people? Uh, third, does God still heal today? And finally, to kind of bring it home, we have to wrestle with, could God heal me or heal through me as I pray for someone else? And notice that the culture that we live in is increasingly hung up on the first two questions. Does God exist and did God ever heal? And for us, as the community of faith, the gospel accounts answer the first two questions with an emphatic yes. Absolutely God exists. He came in the person of Jesus. And of course, he, a staggering percentage of his life and ministry involved healing. But we have to recognize that already at that basic level, our beliefs are met with waves of cultural skepticism. In a recent issue of National Geographic, the cover page and main article uh, were about miraculous healings in faith communities. 
mostly Christian. And they took several case studies from around the world uh, and uh, examined them in depth. And at the end of this long article, rather than denying that the miracles happened, they said, actually, yeah, this happened. And, we, and, and the doctors can't explain it. But their conclusion was, hey, basically, this is the placebo effect. Faith helps you think in a really positive way. And people who think positive thoughts get healed faster. And so somewhere in there and thinking positive thoughts, they got better. We are holistic beings. They actually got that part right. Uh, but rather than acknowledging God's power and presence in healing, they played it off as a trick of the mind. Which, of course, doesn't work at all in explaining what Jesus did. Dead people can't think positive thoughts. And plenty of others have been healed on account of someone else's faith and not their own, including Matt Karsh, who taught last week. But the point is that we are straining as a culture to explain away the miracles and healings of Jesus so that we can have a world in which God doesn't exist, at least not in a knowable, approachable way, and, and the miracles of Jesus didn't happen. In fact, since the Enlightenment, we, we have essentially started our thinking with those assumptions well, clearly miracles don't exist, so now let's approach the scriptures and figure out where the biblical authors got it wrong. This is how scholarship is being done in America. Oh, well, maybe they lied. Maybe they were just really confused. Maybe it was the placebo effect. Oh, maybe it was poetry. I was recently talking with a Buddhist in Hawaii, and I don't get to start nearly enough of my stories with that sentence. <laughs> but I was, and we were talking, and naturally uh, the conversation steered toward faith. That's my son again. Um, and uh, he, we were talking about it, and he said, he said, yeah, the miracles of Jesus were a beautiful way for the disciples to talk about his heart and life. Which you have to think about that for a second. Wait, wait what's lurking behind that? I said, oh, it sounds like we kind of, no, we don't agree. What you're saying is it was a poetic way of describing the positive effect he had on people. What's lurking behind that is, I mean, well, well, obviously it couldn't have happened because that's not possible. So let's figure out another way this could be true. Do you know where those assumptions come from that all of us carry as Westerners? They came from guys like David Hume and Immanuel Kant. Do you know where they got it from? They made it up. Kant literally got together with his philosophy buddies in his department, and they decided, no surveys, no external data, they decided amongst themselves that miracles don't occur anymore. Kant said it this way, he said, because miracles don't occur regularly, they violate the sense of order on which we all depend. Therefore, it is rationally necessary for us to conclude that miracles never occur. Hello? Just in case you didn't get your coffee or you're already thinking about lunch, that doesn't make any sense. 
Essentially, these guys said, well, the laws of nature exist, and they govern how a lot of stuff happens. Therefore, nothing else can happen. Hume called miracles a violation of the laws of nature and argued that those scientific laws provided proof that miracles could not exist. Well, gravity exists, so miracles can't. Guys, this is how Western thinking was born. This is the worldview that you inherited when you were born. And yet the biblical worldview and even firsthand experience blow this whole thing to pieces. Just one single genuine healing destroys the entire foundation on which our modern Western intellectual skepticism is based. Just one. And Jesus is saying, wake up. Who pulled the wool over your eyes? This is the type of stuff that I do. It's just what I do. You know what Jesus told his disciples as he prepared them for his bodily absence? He said, hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the random miracles. That's the last one you'll ever see. No. He said, you will do greater things than me. And, and John says, wait, what, Paul, what did he, Peter, what, what, what did he just say? Did he just say, no. Yeah, that's what he said. He just said, no, he couldn't. You will do greater things than me. And he's not talking about you as a, as a little individual Westerner. He's talking about the church. And, and it's happening every single day through the body of Christ that is the church. Thousands of people a day are being healed. Bones and sinew and, and ligaments coming back together. Cancer cells shriveling, hearts being made whole again from the inside out. Occasionally, even the dead are being raised. That's just the world that we live in. And as followers of Jesus, we have to decide if we want to operate in faith and join in on this new world that Jesus has made available. And so as one small expression of the local church, we pray in faith for healing. Over, over bones and muscles and ligaments, over hearts and minds and souls and emotional trauma. More on that next week. But we pray in faith over these things over, as a community, recognizing that this is just the type of stuff that Jesus does. Jesus is making a whole new world available to us. And, and so as we operate in faith, in whatever little faith that we have, it opens the door that much wider for God to move in power and do what he loves to do in making his kids whole again.
And not everyone is going to get healed every time or the first time or second or, or third or whatever. But God is alive and he healed. By praying for healing, do we risk disappointment? Absolutely yes. But by not praying for healing, I think we risk even more. And so as a community, we pray in faith and we allow both healing and non-healing to point us forward to a future day in which all of us will be healed in every way. Sometimes celebrating along the way what God has done in advance of the end of the age and other times shoulder to shoulder thirsting and, and hungering for that place where we will at last be made whole again. Three times we're told Paul prayed for healing over a physical ailment in his body caused by the enemy. And God told him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Is that true? Absolutely it's true. Was God up to something in that moment? Absolutely. Did this occasion of non-healing stop Paul from praying passionately for the sick to be made well and for the dead to be raised? Not at all. He, he lived in that tension, creating a beautiful theology of how to suffer well with God and allow him to work something in your character through it. He's saying, don't waste it. And yet, at the same time, he, he was passionately praying for more of God's kingdom to break into this reality, for more of his will to be done here and now. And, and he held them both at the same time. And River's Edge, that's what I want for us. I want us to hold those two things in tension, to strike that beautiful balance between the two. God, would you heal me? No. God, would you heal me? No. God, would you heal me? No. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. God, would you raise that dead guy? Yeah. Whoa. That, that was Paul's life. We'll end with this. This is a description of the early church. A first-hand historical account from the second century and not an uncommon one from, from this era. For some do certainly and truly drive out devils so that those who have thus been cleansed from evil spirits frequently both believe in Christ and join themselves to the church. Others have foreknowledge of things to come. They see visions and utter prophetic expressions. Others still, heal the, others still heal the sick by laying their hands upon them, and they are made whole. Moreover, as I have said, the dead have even been raised up and remained among us for many years. And what more shall I say? It is not possible to name the number of gifts which the church, scattered throughout the world, has received from God in the name of Jesus Christ. This is the world that he made possible. And to be honest with you, I just don't want to miss out. God's plan for the church never changed. 
our assumptions about reality did. Will everyone get healed every time? No. Paul wasn't. His friends weren't. But can we learn to live by faith in this new world? Can we invite God to do stuff that our culture has written off as impossible? Absolutely, yes. And, and, and that's where I want us to live, right there in that tension. Let's pray.